0: When Philo of Alexandria stood before the Roman Emperor Caligula, he had a growing sense that he might be about to get executed. Caligula was very angry, and when Caligula got angry, the all powerful emperor with a reputation for sadistic savagery was fond of lashing out. Philo didn't know what was about to happen, but he knew anyway that coming to see Caligula was pointless. The emperor didn't much care about Jewish sensibilities or their efforts to be tolerated by the Romans that there was trouble in the city of Alexandria in Egypt. Caligula considered it to be the Jews' own fault. As for why Philo was there in the first place, we'll get to that. He and his entourage escaped with their lives that day. But Caligula ordered that a statue of himself as a god be placed inside the holy temple in Jerusalem. Philo swore that the Jewish leaders of Jerusalem would die before they would allow such a desecration. Luckily, before the statute could be made, Caligula was himself assassinated in a palace coup. But Philo wasn't about to let him rest in peace. Caligula's infamous reputation for cruelty, insanity, and tyrannical sexual perversion was largely a product of the writings of Philo and a small number of other contemporary sources that survived history. Which leads us to a logical historical lesson that all should take heed. Don't be mean to the Jews. They'll write bad things about you. And their works last forever. Last episode, we talked about Hillel the Elder, the great Jewish sage in Jerusalem who focused on Jewish interpretations of Torah despite the surrounding dominant Greek culture of the Romans. For today, our guy Philo lived in both worlds, a Jew in one of the great Greek cities of the ancient world. He wanted to unite Jewish and Greek philosophies, to join Moses with Plato to read the Hebrew Bible through the lens of Greek thought, and to explain Judaism with Greek ideas. If you've ever read a story in the Torah for its symbolic meaning, rather than its literal one, you are an heir to Philo's way of thinking. Philo was a multicultural guy living at a moment when Greeks and Jews were often opposed to each other, sometimes violently. He thought it could unite the cultures through a reinterpretation of the Torah. He was an interesting man who lived in very interesting times. And this is, at least in its broad strokes, his story. I'm your host, Jason Harris, and welcome back to Jew I Don't Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. We don't know too many specific details about Philo's life, but we do know about his family. And we know a whole lot about the world in which he was living. We can kind of bookend his life with two things we know definitively. That he visited the emperor Caligula in the year 39 or 40 of the Common Era. And then he wrote thousands of pages of texts which have been preserved since antiquity. So he's not so enigmatic as to doubt his existence as a real person. When he visited Caligula, Philo described himself as already an old man. From this detail and other triangulations, historians place his birth around the year 20 BCE. He died at the age of 70 in the year 50 of the Common Era. He was witness to the mighty power of the Roman Empire sweeping the Mediterranean under the emperors Augustus, Tiberius, and Caligula. Closer to home, his lifetime saw the rising discontent to Roman rule in Judea the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth, and the first stirrings of Christianity. As we'll see, Philo's works played an important role, and it's why we have them today. He was born, raised, and lived in the great port city of Alexandria, a city of perhaps a million people hanging on to the extreme edge of the coast of Egypt, jutting out into the Mediterranean Sea. It had been founded by Alexander the Great a few centuries ago. Hence its name, and for a while was the major capital city of the sprawling Greek Empire. It was almost the greekest place in the Greek world. It's what we call Hellenization. It's like Americanization, it means the spread of Greek culture to the parts of the world conquered or heavily influenced first by the Greeks and then by the Romans. Alexandria was the prime example. But here is the situation that Philo was born into. In recent decades, the city had been slipping in stature. The Roman Empire revered, of course, Rome, and Alexandria's Greek culture was being diluted by an influx of non-Greek foreigners, mostly Egyptians and Jews. Alexandria was the largest Jewish community outside of Judea, and it was an important center of Jewish culture and learning. Jews were an indelible part of a multicultural city undergoing, at this moment, multicultural tensions. Philo had the unique experience of living in a family that straddled both the Greek and Jewish worlds. His family was wealthy, well-known, assimilated into Greek culture, and super connected. His brother was a high-ranking Roman official for the city, and that side of the family was closely involved with the Roman monarchy that ruled Judea. So on the one hand, we have Philo as a prominent member of a Greek city whose family was close with the Roman elite. Philo could have easily decided that Greek culture was superior to the Jewish one and fully embraced the tantalizing cocktail of Roman politics and Hellenization. But he did not. Philo remained a committed Jew. He neither fully assimilated nor totally separated from Greek culture. And given the volume of written work, he clearly had an excellent Greek and Jewish education. So while Hillel the elder was frozen in snow on the roof of his school, desperately trying to hear his teachers, Philo studied Torah while reclining on his chaise lounge, spoon-fed grapes by an army of Greek concubine tutors, which is not a bad way to get him an education. We pursue a middle ground here at Juwadano. Lots of snacks, no mistresses. We know that Philo visited Jerusalem. He wrote about seeing the great second temple that King Herod the Great had rebuilt atop the Temple Mount platform that still stands today. He would have walked by the western wall, Judaism's holiest site, but he wouldn't have made much, mo- much note of it. Back then, it was just a retaining wall of the platform. But where things get interesting is that despite his steadfast commitment to Judaism, Philo probably didn't speak Hebrew. Yes, he studied the Torah, but not in Hebrew. Instead, he used a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible known as the Septuagint, which had been made a couple centuries earlier. For Greek-speaking Jews who had mostly lost Hebrew as their mother tongue, the Greek Septuagint translation was considered an equal text to the original Hebrew Bible. After all, Greek represented the highest cultural sophistication of the day. The Jews were inordinately proud of their Greek version of the Torah. So with his family background, his wealth, his scholarly interests, and his political connections, It's no surprise that he became a big-time leader of the Alexandrian Jewish community during the first century of the Common Era. And that put him right in the middle of some trouble. Alexandria was one of the great cosmopolitan capitals of the Greek and Roman world. Although the Jews weren't the most elite of the city, they did enjoy what we call communal autonomy. They could govern themselves more or less as they pleased and had the freedom to practice their Jewish faith. But in the first century of the Common Era, things were on the downswing and that sparked ethnic tension. And that, no surprise, was bad for the Jews. The American scholar Adam Kirsch writes that the Jews occupied a dangerous middle position in Alexandrian society, less powerful than the Greek-speaking elite that ruled the city, but legally superior to the native Egyptian-speaking population. This left them exposed to the grievances and envy of both sides, and Philo gives the impression that the city was a powder keg waiting to explode. He didn't have to wait long. Philo wrote that in the year 38, a pogrom tore through Alexandria's Jewish community. The occasion was the visit to the city by the new Roman-appointed king of Judea, whom the non-Jews publicly mocked in order to anger the Jewish community. Philo wrote that Alexandria's Roman governor, instead of standing with his fellow Roman leader, instead took the opportunity to appeal to his base by refusing to stop the incitement. He, too, Philo noted, had a particular hatred for the Jews, and was happy to pretend to look the other way while he urged on the mob with a wink and a nod. All hell broke loose when the non-Jews threatened to erect idols in the synagogue. If you know your Jewish history, you know this is the equivalent of showing up at the Republican Party convention with a Prius and a Hillary Clinton t-shirt. It's the same spark that lit the fire of the revolt of the Maccabees a couple centuries earlier, the story of Hanukkah. The Jews threatened to fight back. And that was the provocation the non-Jews were waiting for. They ransacked the Jewish neighborhoods, and when the governor called all Jews illegal aliens and gave his permission to anyone who wanted to exterminate them, many in the mob were happy to oblige. Philo recorded that Jews were dragged out of their homes, stoned to death and burned alive, their businesses destroyed, their homes wrecked, and tens of thousands or more segregated to certain areas of the city. The Greek-speaking elite and the Egyptian-speaking lower classes may not have liked each other much, but one thing they could agree on was that it was probably the fault of the Jews. So the Jewish community organized a delegation to Rome to appeal to the emperor Caligula. They appointed Philo as their ambassador. Philo wrote that it was his age, education, and prudent demeanor which accounted for his appointment. Since we lack a definitive date for his birth, this was a crucial detail that historians used to estimate his actual age. At first, Philo was optimistic that the Roman emperor would uphold the imperial policy of freedom of worship. He was quickly disappointed. Caligula wasn't having it. Instead, Caligula treated the Jews with disdain and doubled down on the provocations in Alexandria. The emperor decreed that a gold statue of himself be erected in the Temple of Jerusalem the single greatest sacrilege that one could commit, and one that would likely spark a war between the Jews and the Romans. It was so egregious that the Roman governor put in charge of making it slow walk the project. Luckily, Caligula was assassinated in the year 41 CE before his statue could be built. So what's the point? What's the point of all this? This story shows how Philo was a man who, as the writer Adam Kirsch says, stands both inside and outside Judaism in a way that perfectly reflects his position as an Alexandrian Jew educated in Greek science and philosophy. Philo strongly identifies as a Jew and believes very much in the holiness of the Jewish God, but that doesn't mean he rejects the Greek culture outright. Adam Kirsch writes that Philo, a worldly and philosophical man, he knows that Jewish patriotism is not the only patriotism, that every people is equally attached to his own customs. Philo isn't looking to separate Jews from Greek society, but instead to appeal to Greek values as a tool of inclusion. And this leads him to his great literary project, uniting the Jewish holy texts with Greek philosophy. Philo was standing at a great hinge moment in the history of human wisdom, and this is what makes him so significant. The great 20th century scholar, Harry Wolfson writes that, we've got a sea change in literature happening here. We're going from a pagan Greek literature, which emphasizes reason as the key to understanding the world to a religious literature, which uses revelation to achieve the same. What Wolfson calls scripture, which begins of course, with the Hebrew Bible, later moves into the Christian New Testament, and still later we get the Muslim Quran. And so we have this moment where it could be possible for someone who straddles both entry points of wisdom, the Greek of reason and the religious of revelation, to bathe simultaneously in both waters, giving us something entirely new. And this person is Philo. Many historians have pointed out that Philo wasn't a particularly original thinker. He didn't invent the idea of interpreting either the Torah or Greek philosophy. But what he did was take everything he knew about the Torah, which was considerable, and everything he knew about Greek philosophy, which was equally much, and reinterpret the Hebrew Bible through the lens of Greek philosophy. The biblical historian John Barton explains that Philo did this, in part, to attempt to explain Judaism to interested non-Jews who thought in philosophical categories. Philo thought that by explaining the Hebrew Bible in the terms that non-Jewish Greek speakers could understand, he could bring the two cultures together in a certain harmony. This was a tall order. Philo knew more than anyone else that the Roman ideal of coexistence wasn't really working when it came to the Jews. The writer Adam Kirsch says that Philo was among the first Jews, but far from the last to try to reimagine the Torah as a rational and universal text, not a mere chronicle of Jewish history and legend, but a coded expression of eternal truths about nature and morality. So the question is, how did Philo do it? All right, here's an example. Philo applied the Greek concept of allegory to the biblical texts. An allegory uses a story to suggest a hidden, significant meaning beneath the literal text itself, like an extended metaphor. Philo applied this literary device to the biblical account, especially the book of Genesis, to try to derive a deeper meaning behind the stories of the foundation of Judaism. So here's the classic example. Philo looked at the story of the covenant between God and Abraham, this profound moment in the Jewish narrative in which God instructs Abraham to leave his home in Babylon and make his way to the land of Israel, where he will be blessed as the father of a great nation. Philo pulls out this phrase from Genesis. And the Lord said unto Abraham, Depart out of your land, and out of your kindred, and out of your father's house, into the land which I will show you. So on the one hand, Philo took the story at face value. That is, he accepted this as a literal story about Abraham. But he also applied an allegorical interpretation to get at the deeper meaning. For Philo... Abraham leaving his land is a symbol of the body. His kindred is a symbol of sense perception. And his father's house is a symbol of speech. Philo writes that this is a story in which God begins carrying the carrying out of his will to cleanse the man's soul by giving it a starting point for full salvation in its removal out of three localities, namely body, sense perception, and speech. In other words, yes, this is a story about the covenant and how God promised Abraham and his descendants the territory that became the land of Israel, but it's also a story with a deeper meaning about human consciousness, about needing to remove oneself from your body, from your sense perception, from your speech, in order to fully cleanse your soul by going on this long journey away from home. John Barton, the biblical historian, writes that what matters for Philo is that these stories symbolize general truths about human nature, and especially about its inner constitution. Abraham, he writes, is a symbol of the soul in its journeyings. Adam Kirsch writes similarly that the allegorical point of the story isn't the promise of a specific piece of territory, the land of Israel, but instead God is instructing Abraham to abandon his body. Kirsch writes that the change God wants from Abraham is not geographic, but moral. Philo's appeal to the journey of the soul, the use of the senses, the transcendence of earthly concerns. These are, writes Adam Kirsch, standard tropes of Stoic ethics projected onto the sacred history of the Jews. So we're taking Greek values of philosophy and applying it to the Hebrew Bible. So Philo applies this kind of treatment throughout the Hebrew Bible, from creation to circumcision to Moses and the Ten Commandments. Philo looks at the dietary laws, what we today call keeping kosher, all the stipulations about whether this animal is okay to eat and in what situation. For Philo, these rules aren't only about the specific dietary situation, but are also symbols for how to conduct oneself virtuously. It's not that you don't need to keep kosher, because Philo is a committed Jew and believes in strict adherence to Jewish law, but it is that there's also this deeper layer of meaning under everything. And because these deeper layers align with the Greek philosophical approach, it means that the Jewish narrative is universal and rational. So Philo wrote extensively before his death around the year 50. But the Jews weren't much into adopting his multicultural approach to the biblical texts, and it actually wasn't them who preserved his writings all these centuries. It was instead another group of people. Not too long after Philo, in the year 70, the Second Temple was destroyed. Jerusalem sacked, and the Jews driven to all corners of the Roman Empire. The rabbis assumed the mantle of Jewish leadership and went about remaking Judaism to fit into the new historical reality. They were focused on developing and disseminating their own interpretations of Torah, what eventually became the Talmud. They weren't interested in the works of the Greek-reading, Greek-speaking, greek Greek philosophizing Jew in Alexandria. The early Jewish sages never once mentioned Philo in all of their writings. But there was a group of people for whom Philo's efforts to synthesize Jewish law with Greek philosophy proved super convenient. Philo's life overlapped that of Jesus, and for Jesus' followers, Philo's methods proved very attractive. Neither Philo nor these first Christians ever recorded that they had met one another, and it's doubtful that they did. But early Christian writers like St. Paul, and the author of the Gospel of John, certainly knew who Philo was. They happily took up his approach of interpreting the Jewish texts symbolically, rather than literally. The point is that early Christians took the philosophical platform that Philo provided for interpreting the Hebrew Bible, and used that to develop their own theology. Philo provided them a way to discard the stuff they didn't like, such as Jewish law, and redevelop the stuff they did, such as the idea that underneath the biblical text was an interpretive layer of greater meaning. Philo certainly wouldn't have approved. He was, after all, a devoted and devout Jew. But the Christians so revered him that some considered him to be an early church father. And so it was the Christians who preserved his writings down through the ages. It wasn't until the 1500s in Italy that Jewish scholars rediscovered Philo's writings and began commenting on them. And it took a couple hundred more years for Jews to really appreciate his contributions. His efforts to harmonize Jewish teaching with the popular majority culture appealed to liberal modern Jews, especially those searching for a universal, rational message within the biblical text. So all in all, Philo turns out to be an incredibly important thinker who lived at this great hinge moment of history. What he did was try to harmonize pagan Greek philosophy's emphasis on reason with the new scriptural emphasis on revelation as the source of human wisdom. Rather than see them in opposition to each other, Philo felt that both reason and revelation supported one another. And this underpinned the field of philosophy for the next 1,500 years. As the scholar Harry Wolfson puts it, Philo kicked off a radical change in our theories of knowledge, physics, ethics, and morality, fundamentally altering how we approached and understand the nature of our worlds. The 20th century Christian theologian Raymond Serberg wrote that Philo represents a strange fusion. By nature and upbringing, he was a Jew. By residence in Alexandria, a mystic. By higher education, a Greek humanist. By contact and social position, an ally of the Roman aristocracy. Philo tried to justify the Jewish religion to Greco-Roman society, and he tried to convince his own Jewish community that Greek didn't have to stand in opposition to Judaism and that instead, the two shared common values and principles. It was a model of coexistence that Jews and non-Jews alike have wrestled with ever since. Okay, so that's Philo of Alexandria, the second philosopher of season six. Ten Jewish philosophers you want to know, We're sticking around in the ancient world for one more guy next episode, moving the action back over to the land of Israel at a time of open warfare between Jews and Romans, the last gasp of Jewish independence in the Holy Land until the state of Israel. And we'll be looking at one rabbi in particular. Many consider him perhaps the greatest rabbi of all time. That's next week. As always, my website is JewIdon'tKnow.com and my email is Podcast at gmail.com Thanks for listening everyone. Talk to you next time. Heathrow throat. See you later.